what brings satisfaction, not just in some future life, but uh, as we make our way through uh, this life under the sun. Now, last week, Pastor Kelly, uh, in chapter 10, uh, did it by way of, because it's uh, full of proverbs and advice and so on, uh, did it by way of speaking to his son, Scott, who uh, was uh, about to be dropped off at, at college. And it was a very appropriate way. I, I feel like that was a good way to do it because actually there are commentators that believe that that's what this book is. Solomon passing on to that next generation to his, uh, things that he wanted them to know. Uh, this chapter kind of continues on with that kind of uh, a mode of, of bringing advice. Now, I know that uh, Pastor Kelly dropped off his son. Uh, a number of you, including myself, dropped off a, a child this week at various colleges and universities, and, uh, and, and yet he let us listen in last week. Uh, those of us, there were several of us that dropped our, our children off at Covenant College, and they had an orientation for parents, uh, and one of the things, or I'll give you several things before we get to this, that uh, we were told as parents, uh, by the vice president, uh, uh, the dean for uh, student development, he gave a, a number of aspects of advice. Several of them stuck with me. One was, uh, don't go home, even though it's tempting, don't go home and lay on your child's bed and look through old photo albums at this point. I thought that was, that was good advice. I think that may have been mostly for the moms, but, uh, and he said also, don't call your child while you're crying. And uh, this one I think maybe was uh, uh, especially for the dads. Uh, he said, as tempting as it is for you, don't go home and remodel their room into that office or gym or sewing room or anything like that. And he said, uh, the main reason is because uh, statistics say that about 77% of your children will be back in that room at some point. Now, I've, I've, we've dropped off uh, three children so far, and two of them came back to their room for a period of time, so I expective statistics hold. We better leave her room ready. Uh, as we go into this passage, uh, because there are kind of almost some self-contained units here. Now, they all flow together, but uh, we're going to go through each of these verses. And so rather than read it all at once, which when you're reading Proverbs, it can, it can sound almost disjointed, we're going to to look at them more individually. Uh, so let's begin with prayer. Father, we do thank you for your precious word, this word that you preserved for us, 
here in this place today that applied to them long ago, but applies to us every bit as much. And we pray that you would make that clear by your spirit, even as we have sung and we have prayed. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin with uh, what is a, a somewhat familiar saying, verse 1 in chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. Now, I, I say it is uh, somewhat familiar, but I know that, at least for me, I never understood what, what in the world, <laughs> what is that talking about? Casting your bread upon waters, who's going to do that? It doesn't make sense. And uh, so in, in looking into this, I think it's one of the hard sayings to interpret. The traditional interpretation of this tends to be, do good deeds and you'll be rewarded eventually. Do good deeds and, you know, they'll, they'll come back to you eventually. Uh, some of the older commentators viewed it as being industrious. Now, the, the context of the, the type of thing that went on in this day, by the way, uh, some see it as cast your bread or your seed upon the waters. And uh, if you look at it as casting your seed upon the waters, the way it would make sense in that day had to do with the flooding around the, the Nile River. Now, I just went to visit my brother up in Sioux City, Iowa, and uh, I, I flew into Omaha and uh, drove up to Sioux City. But I couldn't take the normal route because the Missouri River is still so far out of its banks that uh, the main highways are, are closed down there, so it's back roads all the way up there. Usually by now it's long receded. But what happens is if, you, if you've ever lived near where there is uh, flooding annually or periodically, you know what kind of land that is. That bottom land that uh, the water comes in and it washes up the silt and all kinds of things uh, from upriver and, and so on. Then when it recedes, it makes rich soil. Well, that was, that's the same with uh, the Nile River that has always uh, left its banks. But apparently, one of the things that uh, uh, some of the farmers would do is that as, as the water began to recede, because they couldn't actually go out and farm that land immediately, they would cast seed on the water so that as it receded, it would plant itself with the hope that at some point their crops would grow. Now, there was no guarantee. Of course, they couldn't do it in rows or in any kind of a, a way that they could anticipate it. But, but uh, uh, some commentators feel like that's really uh, the, what it's talking about here. Now, you've got a choice in terms of your interpretation. Some saw it as international trade and that kind of thing because... Uh, Solomon's ships would go out every three years and then they would come back with uh, uh, rewards or the trade that they had. But the bottom line in terms of interpreting, it's, it's a matter of stepping out on faith, <clears throat> investing, giving, patiently waiting for the results 
from that. And those results are only the results that are going to come from God. Now, if we think about the kingdom, it really does begin to make sense. Because so often, things that we do as a church, you, if you're ministering to somebody, if you, uh, you know, if you have, if you're teaching Sunday school, you don't necessarily see the results of what you're doing. And you may not see them for a long time, and you may not see them in this lifetime. And yet, we are encouraged to continue by faith in that way, investing. Now, I think verse 2 is a parallel with uh, verse 1, and, and I think his emphasis, uh, the first one being let go and it'll be returned, the second verse, give, don't hoard. Give, don't hoard. Give a portion, verse 2, a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, again, these, you know, these are hard when you just read them. You say, what, what's it talking about? Commentators, most of them believe that this is a kind of an old way of saying, diversify your investments. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, some would say. Don't hoard what you have. Solomon realizes we won't be free from disaster in this life, and we can't predict all of the, the disasters. And the tendency, if we're not careful, the tendency, and here, here you know, we're, we're Presbyterians. We, we tend to be conservative in terms of what we're going to step out and do. And so the tendency is, well, let's, let's keep it because we don't know what this year's going to bring, what next year's going to bring, or anything like that. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't, don't hoard what you've been given. It's from me. And when you think in terms of disasters and things going on out there, I'm, I'm still in control of those things. Now, if you look over in uh, Proverbs, there's some parallel Proverbs there, uh, Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and uh, not be answered. You see, we, we tend to try to figure out every possible contingency before we do anything. And he's saying... Look, who, who ultimately is in control here? Now, when I say we, that's a generic we, because I think that our church has demonstrated wonderfully in this last year this very principle of not hoarding. Just a couple of examples. Our faith mission giving. You know, here we were last spring with our missions conference. We talk about faith mission giving. Everybody in this church knew that we were about to go into a, a stewardship emphasis and, and uh, talk about building a building and see what people would pledge toward that. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, we'll be doing good if we hold our own in faith mission giving. 
and we get through this building and then we can begin to, you know, hopefully grow that because it, it had grown each year since we started it. That was what I was thinking. But instead, God moved among our people. He moved in hearts. And not only did we hold our own, people by faith said we will give $70,000 more toward global missions and local missions. I was amazed. And then we had our stewardship campaign and, and our church gloriously responded to that. Now, that's in the face of other churches, and, and if you know people in other churches, the vast majority of churches right now are pulling in their skirts. They're saying, you know, we don't know how we're going to make it. You know, things are, are hard in the economy and so on. And we knew what the economy was. I mean, we know what it is. And our fiscal year just began. But our giving in that area has been strong as well. And all I can do is say, praise God, because he has moved in the hearts of his people to say, we will not hoard. We will continue by faith to move ahead. And you know, there's another area that once this building is built, that we've got to continue on in this, and that is giving it away. You know, we're building it not just so we can enjoy it, we're building it for our community as well. We've been generous with our building in terms of groups meeting here and so on, and we've got to continue. We'll always be thinking, yeah, you know, I hate to see trees gone, but it will be worth it. It's important for our community. And then he goes on, verse 3 and 4. And I'll give you the title I gave it. Don't, don't just become an observer. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. In other words, there's some things we just can't do anything about. Verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. Now here is your classic Monday morning quarterback of life. Those who spend all their time observing the obvious that you can't do anything about. <coughs> he mentions in those first, uh, that first verse things that, you know, they're just going to happen. You can't do anything about it. And then he mentions the wind. He says those who sit around just watching that, they'll never end up sowing. I suppose that's because they would, they would say, oh, it's too windy to sow today. You know, all our seeds will get scattered. And then the wind dies down, and they'd, they'd be looking at that and say, well, there's no wind. We're not going to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff today because the wind won't blow it away. And they get paralyzed by observing these things that you simply cannot do anything about. Now think about that in, in our lives, what, what kinds of things those are. You might think of the weather, taxes, bills, 
final scores of ball games. <laughs> you can sit around uh, after that and, and dissect it. The passing of time. The fact of death. People who focus on the inevitable can easily get in deep and disturbing patterns or ruts. I heard about a sign this week. I read about it. Uh, um, apparently, there's a sign on, a, on the Alaskan highway. Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. <laughs> And that's, that's not where we want to be. We don't want to just be observers. Don't worry, I'm not going to break into the song, I Hope You Dance, but that's, that's really what it's saying here, in essence. Don't get stuck in that. I'm the sovereign one. And you mustn't get paralyzed by those things. And then verse 5 and 6. Because God is at work, we should be also. And that's got to be by faith. Verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The point is, that, you know, there's a lot of things that we're not going to quite understand. Things we deal with all the time. Here he's talking about uh, uh, how the body is formed. But just because we don't understand, you know, that part of it, we still use our bodies, right? When I was in rehab, exercise rehab, I qualify, after having a heart attack, I was amazed, because a lot of it was educational, I was amazed at how many things can go wrong with a heart. You know, it, it, if, you, if you didn't watch it, you could say, whoa. Okay, I, you know, I can clog up or my electrical things might not work and, and all this. I, I better just sit around and... But that's not the answer, is it? And so we move ahead. There are things we don't understand. We continue to, to act on them by faith. Likewise, we don't understand God's ways. Verse 6, In the morning you sow your seed, at evening... Withhold not your hand. Whenever it says morning and evening, usually that, you know, in, especially in the Old Testament, it's saying throughout the whole day. Um, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He's saying don't quit. From the human perspective, we don't know what's going to succeed. Harks back to casting your bread on the water. We don't know the future, but we must still function. One paraphrase of that said, keep on sowing your seed, for you never know which will grow. Perhaps it all will. Now, with that almost as a background, he's, he's giving these, these points for them and us to act on. Then he begins to exude joy. He says, as I've put it, enjoy life. It's great, but be realistic. Verse 7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes 
to see the sun. Find beauty in every day. This isn't just some sappy proverb. It's saying because of who is in control, because God is good ultimately, because there are things you cannot control, there are things that we ought to enjoy and receive joy in. Verse 8, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes, all that comes is vanity. Enjoy life from the beginning to end. Now, he's about to speak to the young and to the old. But too often, we have the tendency to think that uh, other parts of life will be happier. Don't you? Don't we have that, that tendency? The single person wants to be married. The married... Well, never, don't, don't go with that. <laughs> For some, that's the case, isn't it? The poor wish they were rich. The young often want to be older, and the old want to be young. He's saying, no, enjoy all aspects of life. Several years ago, Connie and I were asked to come do a parenting workshop at, at a church uh, uh, over in Georgia. And we were going to speak a number of times. And so we, we chose the, the topic, um, Parenting with Joy, Enjoying All the Phases of Parenting. You know what? They can all be hard but they're all good. And that's, that's what life, that's really what life is to be. In terms of youth, George Bernard Shaw said, youth is such a wonderful thing, it's a shame to waste it on young people. <laughs> In verse 9, keep the balance. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Now, let's stop right there because that's one of those that, that's not exactly necessarily the, the advice you give your young man as he's heading out, is it? You know what? Follow your heart. If it feels good, you, you just do it. We don't say that. Well, he doesn't stop there either, does he? He brings out the, the aspect of joy. But then, in the next part of the verse, he says, but know for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remember the godly limits. He brings you judgment in two ways. One is, if we abuse our freedom and ignore God's ways. But the other way that there is judgment is if we refuse to live a joyful life. You never think of that, do you? 
Back in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, listen to what is said about God's people. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. He'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. One commentator said about that, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. In him, of course. In his way. That's what we are seeing at the, at the end of this book. That's where the satisfaction is. And then verse 10, don't choose a life of pain. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. Now that seems to indicate that we have choices to make concerning anxiety and emotional pain. Now, look, we've got to say right up front, because he's already said it, there are things that we cannot and do not control. That's not what it's talking about. There are those things. He's talking about the things that we can. Choices about physical pain producers, drugs, other abuses, illicit sex. These are things that, that we make choices about. And he's saying, don't be like the person that you know, you, you've been diagnosed, you know you have an allergic reaction to some food, and then you say, but you know what, I like that food, I, I'll just take the consequences, I'll eat it anyway. Well, at best it's going to be sickening and it may kill you. And he's saying there are those choices in this life. Don't make those choices. Now, I want to give you four, four more applications, but specifically in terms of areas where we find joy robbers. If we are to live a, a joyful, a joy-filled life, and somebody came in the door today. I was greeting downstairs before um, Sunday school, and some, somebody said, uh, you know, nobody should have more joy than Christians. And I said, that's what my sermon's about exactly what I'm preaching about. But there are those things that, that will rob us, and I see far too many Christians that are not living that joyful life because of these and other joy robbers. One is dwelling on that which we cannot change, as we talked about earlier. Other people dwelling on so-and-so needs to change, and my happiness depends on whether that person changes or not. Or circumstances, clearly, there are things that we can change, but when we can't, if we dwell on it, we'll be robbed of joy. Secondly, dwelling on that which we cannot know. The future, worrying about the future, or God's secret will. You know, most of his will he's made abundantly clear in the word of God, and there's a percent maybe 10% that, that he 
didn't make known to us. But some people spend all their time dwelling on that 10% that they can't know, and they ignore all the rest that they can know. We've all known someone who had a symptom, physical symptom. Went to the doctor. You ask what it could be. The doctor gives you a variety of things that it could be and says, we need to do some tests. In the meantime, that person's worried sick because all they heard was the worst-case scenario. And that's all they can think of. And they, they worry about it until they're almost physically sick from that. And then they go get the test and they find out it's all clear. And in that time, they've been robbed of the joy that they could have of trusting in God's sovereignty because instead they chose to dwell on that which they could not know. Another joy robber, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, focusing on my rights, what I deserve or don't deserve. The bottom line is that's a, that's a kind of self-righteousness and it'll ultimately rob us of joy in this life. And a fourth, having our own under-the-sun agenda rather than adjusting to God's agenda. In Philippians 4, Paul said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of, face, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, how can you be content? I thought about this for a long time. I, I got ordained this summer. It was 31 years ago. And I was a, a, an assistant pastor for a couple of years, and then I've served three churches, including this one. In fact, this week's my fifth anniversary, just this week. And you know what? Looking back, we have loved every place we've been. We have enjoyed it. We have loved the people to the point that when we, we were called elsewhere, we felt we were tearing ourselves away from people that we loved. Now, why is that? Is that because we're so flexible and so loving? That really isn't it. I'm convinced it's only one reason. Because I know plenty of pastors that have not had that experience, would not say that. It's because we have been convinced we were where God wanted us to be. So have there been trials in every place we've been? Absolutely. Have there been difficult times? Of course. You can't go through 31 years of ministry without those things. And yet what sustained us was not ourselves or our own ability to adjust or our own ability to be content, but was Christ as the sustainer, as the one putting us where he wanted us to be and having him as the source of our joy and not just a church or 
or people or situations. John Piper talks about Christian hedonism. Now that's a, for some, a, a controversial term. Let me, let me give you his definition though. The pleasure Christian hedonism seeks is the pleasure which is in God himself. He is the end of our search, not the means to some further end. Our exceeding joy is he, the Lord. Not the streets of gold or the reunion with relatives or any blessing of heaven. You see, that's the only source of joy is Christ himself. All of the other things out there, Solomon has been telling us in this book, I tried them and I found them empty. And now he's saying, there is more. Let me ask you this. Have you come to the place where he is more to you than silver or gold or relationships or success or security or food or drink or pleasures? I'm going to ask you in a moment to bow your heads. And then I'm going to pray briefly and I'm going to read some scripture that talks about him as our fulfillment and I would encourage you to ask God to make those the desire of your heart. Let's bow together. Lord, too often we have tried to be fulfilled in objects rather than in you, in people rather than you, in situations rather than in you. And Lord, we too, we either have or we will find those empty. May your words, your wonderful words of life ring true in our lives. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver 
for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. May it be so in our lives, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.